Hi, welcome to Earthfire Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, founder and director of Earthfire Institute, a wildlife sanctuary and retreat center located just west of the Grand Tetons. Our fundamental goal is to help change how people see nature and therefore how they treat it, to understand that we're truly a part of it. And all of the animals here help profoundly in sharing this experience. This is a part of a series of podcasts I'm doing with brilliant, innovative, heartfelt changemakers. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Beckoff. Mark is Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado in Boulder, a fellow of the Animal Behavior Society and former Guggenheim Fellow. He has written or edited more than 30 books, the latest being The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age, and Canine Confidential, Why Dogs Do What They Do. In 2002, he and Jane Goodall published The Ten Trusts, What We Must Do for the Animals We Love. Mark was presented with the Bank One Faculty Community Service Award in 2005 for the work he's done with children, senior citizens, and inmates, much of which continues today. In 2009, he was presented with the St. Francis of Assisi Award by the New Zealand SPCA. In 1986, Mark became the first American to win his age class at the Tour de Haute Bar Bicycle Race, also known as the Masters Age Graded Tour de France. His homepage is markbeckoff.com. That's M-A-R-C-B-E-K-O-F-F.com. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. I'm thrilled to be able to chat with you because we both are so passionate about the same, same things. I've got a bunch of questions myself. Okay. And, um, I guess the main thing is for you to share what you think is most important for people to know at this time. Um, that's one thought. And another is all these different threads that are happening now in conservation mm-hmm. changes and where they're leading and how we can help make them more profoundly useful. I know one of the things you're working on is the whole idea of compassionate conservation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read your essay on that. And um, whatever you think is important to share with people about this new movement, it's pretty new. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, really, the, to me, the basic um, ideas behind compassionate conservation is that um, each, the life of each and every individual matters. And so there's just four basic tenets, but the, the two that I really rely on most would be first do no harm and then the life of every individual matters. And then there's respect for wildlife and then there's um, striving for peaceful coexistence. Mm-hmm. And, even, and even within the compassionate conservation um, group, if you will, or there's no real organization, you could call it a movement. It's really interdisciplinary. So it's biologists and ethologists and evolutionary biologists, geneticists, um, sociologists, psychologists, anthropologists, journalists, lawyers. I mean, what I love about compassionate conservation is it's just so transdisciplinary. That's kind of the word that's in vogue these days. So people get together and talk. For, for me personally, I've been really practicing it for a long time and wrote essays years ago about the value of individuals, mm. you know, the inherent value of each and in 
each and every individual life or the intrinsic value of each and every individual life. So that's what's really motivated me to get more involved. So um, along with Dale Jameson, who was a philosopher who taught here, we taught courses on animal minds and we did a lot of writing. We actually wrote papers back in the early 90s about the value of each individual life. So that kind of laid the groundwork for um, compassionate conservation. So that's, that's basically where I jump in. So I don't know if you've looked at my website or not, but we have a sanctuary here where mm -hmm. many of the animals um, can never be released. Mm -hmm. So I live with them for their lives mm -hmm. and get to know them profoundly mm -hmm. on an individual basis, mm -hmm. bears and wolves. And the individuality is so striking. Mm -hmm. Six bears, six different personalities. Seven wolves from a litter, seven different personalities. Mm -hmm. It's striking. So I have all these stories I, I want to share that are so important about each individual being, as you would say, not just, um, what's the right word? The way I think of it is that each life is sacred. Mm -hmm. That life itself is sacred. Yep. And then from there it follows, if all life is sacred, then how shall we live? Every single life is sacred. It's got mm -hmm. a value, which to me is more like the deep ecology approach. Mm -hmm. Value, which I love everything. <coughs> about. And then taking one step further is actually into the sacred and spiritual element, which some you know each person can pick what speaks to them the best. Oh, I think I think it's critical to go into that realm. And along with the deep ecology, I've been writing a bunch about what I call deep ethology. And huh. deep, yeah, um, part of my I wrote about it um, in a number of places, but in a book I wrote called Rewilding Our Hearts, I wrote about deep ethology, which is really the effort to learn the behavior patterns, if you will, of each and every individual, like you said, as, as the unique personalities, who they are, not that they are or what they are. Yeah. Um, and I always tell stories um, in this book I just wrote on dog behavior. You know, you can look at pups a day after birth and they're all individuals. And when we studied wild penguins and wild, uh, wild penguins, uh, deli penguins in Antarctica, I mean, even the babies are unique. They, you know, they all look alike to people, but you know, behaviorally they're really unique. And when you watch young coyote pups or wolf pups come out of a den in the wild, you've got shy, shy individuals, bold individuals, really obnoxious individuals. Um, but, <laughs> but but I think that that's really what should drive everybody in terms of the way they view other animals, the way they talk about other animals, the way they interact and treat other animals, that each life is as valuable as my own life or your own life is to you. Yeah. And, and a lot of people say those things and I mean, we've all learned through our life. I certainly have done things that I wish I didn't do years ago. Um, but, but right now, and maybe not just right now, but for a really long time, I just refuse to believe that each life isn't important to the individual who is living it. And even if they're not sentient, you know, people will say, well, maybe they don't know they're alive or maybe they don't have feelings. To me, that's just not relevant at all. You know, they're alive. And who are we to decide, you know, who lives and who dies? Yeah. 
and we can't create life if someone else did, whoever it was, and who are we to take it away? Well, yeah. it's usually done in the name of humans, and now that we're talking about conservation, I've been writing a paper, I've been writing a, a bunch about um, killing in the name of conservation, and yeah, and really a lot of it is killing in the name of coexistence because some big organizations who for whom the word coexistence is in their mission statement, support the killing of animals. I mean, it, it gets people thinking about what the mission really is. I don't believe we should be killing to coexist. It just, it just seems like an oxymoron to me. Yeah, I'm thinking one of the, um, so I've got, I'm a psychologist also among other mm -hmm. things. Um, and so I do a lot of work in consciousness, mm -hmm. but my main passion is nature and the, and the retreat, uh, the uh, retreat center sanctuary I have here. Mm -hmm. And I go talk at consciousness conferences, conferences, and to a, to a single one, it's always on human consciousness, human yeah. shifting human consciousness, yeah. nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need clean air. Yeah, yeah. It's not. What's important to me, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you, apart from that, I love your work, and I'm happy to expand it any way I can, um, is what do we do to change this? We, you know, is there <laughs> besides writing? But I'll go and talk, and we don't give weight. We give weight to computers, and we give weight to human events, and we give weight and meaning to a lot of these things and we don't give enough weight and meaning to um, air or animals or water. We don't, mm. so there's a, an imbalance of what we not just attend to, but give importance and weight to. Mm -hmm. We do a complete reversal where all life has weight and, and human life is right in there with it. But it's, we've completely lost, and in the conferences I've been to, we've completely lost in human consciousness and the universe. Wait a minute, we came from the earth, we need to have our feet in the earth as well, not just leave to the universe, but grounded in the earth and life and, and the life systems. Right. I mean, there's, I mean, there's been a number of conferences, um, far more than I've gone to, but I've gone to on animal consciousness too. But, um, and really, over the years, they've gotten, when I say better, they've gotten much more they, they, they're more sensitive to who other animals are, you know, the types of consciousness they possess. I mean, what gets me about some of these meetings is once again, how little we really know even about human consciousness. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, I'm conscious, you're conscious, you know, and people, you know, just, I mean, recently I got asked to review a paper that seemed to me that was pre-Descartes, you know, in the sense of, well, we still don't know that non-human animals are conscious and we don't really know they feel emotions. And I refuse to review it because we do know about non-human -anim non animal consciousness. And for, for, for the skeptics, when the, treat, when the, um, the Cambridge Theory, the Treaty of Cambridge, uh, what is it called, um, came out, yeah. you know, um, in um, 2012, it was like reinventing the wheel, you know, I mean, 16 scientists, mostly well-known, 
only a few of whom have ever studied real animals, concluded that non-human animals are conscious. So, you know, uh, you know, the I wrote an article about it, and you know, people started, you know, saying negative things. Oh, gee, we knew that. Oh, gee, this. Yes, we did. But the point is, I took that as an advantage to use it to the animal's advantage by saying, look, so now we have new people saying that they agree that non-human animals are conscious. So, you know, it wasn't meant to recreate the wheel. But I think things are changing along those lines, too, in the sense that it's really hard to find skeptics on that now. I mean, it, it really is. I've done some interviews where people have asked me, well, can you recommend somebody who would disagree with you? And I said, well, there might be people who disagree with me in terms of the scope of animal consciousness, animal emotions. I don't know a soul who would say that right now, whatever, July 16th, 2018, that non-human animals aren't conscious. I really don't know anyone who would say that. That's wonderful. Well, I think that what that means is times are changing. People are paying attention to, you know, data, um, evolutionary biology, and common sense. You know, common sense plays a, a role. Um, to me, the major thing is how do we then use what we know on behalf of other animals? Yeah. And maybe we'll get into that. But, you know, we... The Federal Animal Welfare Act in the United States doesn't recognize rats and mice and fishes and insects as animals. They've actually redefined the word animal to exclude those animals. I mean, that's just stupid. I mean, where are all the scientists? It's in name. And when I talk to other scientists about it, they'll say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. We know they're animals. And I'll say, no, it really does matter because you can torture the hell out of these animals because they're not animals. So what it means is they're not covered by the Federal Animal Welfare Act. You see the same kind of responses in different aspects of conservation where you kill one species of owl to save another species. You kill fish to save, um, you know, birds. I mean, the, you know, what's going on in Washington state now, killing wolves, yeah. you know, um, and that's one example that I use, you know, about the sacred value of all life and that life matters is you've got organizations who are sitting on what's called the Washington, the Wolf Advisory Group, WAG it's called, where they joined knowing that they could not dissent. And the WAG says it's okay to engage in the authorized removal of wolves, which means the killing of wolves. So on the one hand, you've got these organizations who defend wildlife and are striving for coexistence, who say it's okay to kill wolves. A major failure of imagination. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There are other ways, that's uh, I was talking about giving weight and also thinking larger. Um, you wrote about it so well in the compassionate um, conservation essay. They just think the immediate, the short term, the harsh. But if the, with a larger imagination, there's going to be a much better solution. Where you don't have to kill anything. And you find ways of 
of coexisting. It's a total failure of imagination, limited human thinking. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely limited human thinking, but those sorts of decisions really reek of human superiority and human exceptionalism. That too. You don't see people joining those organizations where humans would be substitutes for wolves. You know, I mean, you hope you don't. I mean, I know there are people who do, but, but right. And so if we don't treat humans that way, why would we treat wolves and other sentient beings that way? You know, so for, for some people, if sentience is the key criterion for treating them um, with respect and dignity, well, you couldn't find any more sentient beings than wolves. Yeah. You know, it's a whole thing. It, it's across the board, even with fishes. You know, we now we know fishes are conscious. We know that they feel pain. Yeah. We know that they have very rich emotional lives, and they're killed by the trillions, not the billions. Yeah. So that we yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say. I think it goes out. The I think the suffering goes out into the air, and we just feel it all around the world as suffering. It's not just trillions of fish suffering other animals are killing suffering and it, I think it disrupts everything. I think there's a major sense of PTSD in the air. I, I couldn't agree more with you on that. I try to, you know, sometimes I'll talk to people and I'm a pretty up person. I'm an optimist. I really am still. I think we need to put the best foot forward and believe we can make a difference. But I'll talk to people and after talking with them, you'll see that there's this general malaise, there's this general feeling, not only from the political arena, but from the arena of suffering, non-human and human suffering. You know, the thing about um, compassion or conservation is it focuses on all stakeholders. So it focuses on humans and non-humans. And there's just an incredible amount of suffering by non-human and human animals and I agree with you, and I kind of see it in the spiritual realm that it's really deadening people. Yeah. It, it just really is. You know, Ray, you don't know why sometimes, but it's in the air, as you say. It's, it's, it's out there. And once again, that's why I return to, you know, if I'm looking for something to sort of hang my hat on, I return to compassion and conservation, maybe deep ecology, deep ethology, and return to the fact that I'll say, till I'm blue in the face, if you will, that each and every life matters. Every single life matters. And we don't have the right to kill other animals in the name of humans, in the name of conservation, in the name of coexistence, in the name of food, in the name of research, entertainment, whatever. Yeah. And so that's why I've really moved into the arena of saying the killing has to stop because we get on these slippery slopes where people will go, well, you can't really do, you, we won't do this, but we can do that. And then when you ask them for the principle of why, right. they can't explain it. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but what it comes down to is we're better. We're, we're exceptional. It's a fundamental, fundamental, fundamental point of view that all life is sacred. If you really take that point of view, everything follows from that. That's right. How do we get people, my own work is, how do we get people to start to look at that? You know, one little person out of my seven billion, but I do have some fabulous animal stories that really show in a way the quality of a bear or a wolf or a cougar that actually end up being like spiritual beings and the evidence I have is pretty strong. Mm -hmm. But, well, you know, that, 
Yeah, I mean, it's out there. People just have to be open to it. You know, they think that spiritual connections are fluff. You know, oh, people sometimes say, oh, yeah, you live in Boulder, Colorado. You know, it's all crystals and fluff. It's not. It's the basis of life. It's life comes down from spirit, however you want to express it. You know, whether it's Goethe and his idea of information blueprints that, that come down and are formed through the DNA into beings, whatever it is, or, or well, whatever well yeah i mean there's an ethologist who studies animals and has watched thousands of has watched different animals for many 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 thousands of animals hours um when you watch them and you allow yourself to become them yeah spiritual connection and there's nothing fluffy about it maybe i don't care what people call it but it is a connection with their heart their soul their feelings so it's spiritual. That's how I define it. There's, it's tangible, too. Yes. Very you know, and, and what you were talking about, about this, you know, malaise or this PTSD or this just general downer attitude throughout the world, uh, that's also a spiritual connection. It, it's because of the break. It's yeah. a spiritual connection, but a breakdown in the harmony. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not good in those. You're better. You're better with those words than I am. But, but that's what I think causes people just a lot of pain and suffering. And the other side of the spiritual thing that's tangible is if if you're connecting deeply with an animal, as you know, is you start to glow, and the animal starts to glow. Mm-hmm. Something utterly magical happens. It's very tangible. I bet you could measure the energy field around the two of you and between you. So, one of the things is beginning to change the. So I, I always hesitate to use the word like spiritual ecology because I'm afraid people are going to go off into, into fluff. But I haven't found a better word than spiritual. That is what it is. I have a book right on my bookshelf somewhere, and I can't find it now, called Spiritual Ecology. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote a blurb for it, and it's, yeah. it's not fluff at all. But how do we begin to change attitudes? The most fundamental thing of what we're doing, your work and my work, is to change perceptions and attitudes so we change how we behave well i think well, i think one way is to realize that everything is in connect, interconnected yeah we, we you know once again people think that's fluffy but but it's not we're all interconnected it might not be in a tangible way but everything that i do and everything you do and everything everyone else does goes into the universe and has an effect and it can be across space and time, for example. Yeah. And we, are, we become, as a species, we humans have become very, very powerful. We just, we just really have, and we don't realize that. I mean, a, a lot of people with whom I speak, um, you know, my attitude to, ch- to try to change them, if you will, is just to put it, put the information out there. No arm twisting, no yeah. shaming, no f- making them feel guilty or something like that because it doesn't work. But I think when I ask them to imagine what it would be like to be a particular, say, non-human suffering or assume the life of another human being in a developing country where there's nothing and allow yourself to go there. You have to allow yourself to go there. You then can begin, I think, to empathize and feel their pain and suffering. And I always say everybody, 
everybody who can do something has, has to do something to alleviate the pain and suffering in the world. I mean, I realize that 99% of the world is, you know, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's pretty high, but are really just trying to live through each day. You and I aren't. I, don't, I can't speak for you, but I imagine, you know, you and I have good lives. And I just say, if you've, got, if you've got the ability, whatever it is, if it's time, energy, money, whatever it is, you, yeah. you are compelled yeah. to do something for those who can't. Yeah. And those who can't, of course, would be non-humans and a boatload, if you will, of humans. I, as you would say, um, I couldn't agree with you more. It's <laughs> basically immoral if you have a good life not to do something for others. I think so. That's, I, you know, I, somebody asked me, you know, just a couple um, of weeks ago in an interview about, you know, what would be your goal or what would be my goal. And my dad always just used to say, just to leave the world in a better place than it was when I was born. Yeah. People go, well, that's easy. Well, <laughs> not so fast. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, but, but imagine if everybody who could do that, did that, we would be a lot better off than we are right now. I have conversations online once a month with people, anybody can join from around the world. And one of my major focuses is the power of one. Mm -hmm. And there are these incredible stories of the power of one. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't feel like we are helpless in face of all of it. Um, we can do something, anything. And I keep saying that because people are so shut down, they don't realize that each of us has tremendous power. Each one of us has tremendous power to make a change and to help encourage one another and support one another and help us realize the power we have. Whatever direction it is, doesn't matter. Yep, no, absolutely. I mean, Jane Goodall always says that each and every individual makes a difference. Yep. And that's a message that I do in a lot of talks. And I, I don't want to say especially when I work with kids, but when I work with kids is to empower them. Yeah. That what you feel what you think and what you do matters yeah. because they've been pushed aside into this world of, you know, gadgets and Facebooks and friends who they've never met. And I really mean that. I mean, I, it, bother, it concerns me how that is distancing um, kids from true interactions with other beings, either human or non-human yeah. and stuff. Yeah. You sent me an article now that I'm on your mailing list, about One Welfare. Yeah. That was a really good article. Well, there, there's another effort, you know, the One Health, the One um, Eco Health, the one, um, um, one Welfare Movement, which I love, blends humans and non-humans. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> but people still say to me, well, there's so many humans who are suffering. Why don't you work for them? And I'll go, I choose to work for non-humans mostly. I do work with humans. I've been teaching a course at the Boulder County Jail for 17 years to all different sorts of prisoners. But when we help one, we help the other. Yes. In the big picture. Yes. You know, so get off your human high horse. Um, yeah. If we only focus on humans, we're screwed. Yeah, because the earth doesn't operate that way. So we yeah. are working for humans if we're working for animals. It's a not that's not why you do it necessarily, but it's a complete win-win. 
and if, and vice versa when you're working on humans and you're trying to get them to change their values or their moral compass you can also be helping on humans yeah. but that's what i meant before in the spiritual realm is we're all in this together yeah. you know we're all one in that sort of metaphorical sense and you know you can believe it or not but it's really clear that when you make these false boundaries and you separate humans non-humans higher and lower non-humans higher and lower humans you get into these ridiculous and meaningless hierarchies that favor those on top and abuse and basically harm and maim and kill those on the bottom well, it's true of everything whether we separate blacks from whites or vietnamese from mm -hmm. or, or animals from people it's just women from men or mm -hmm. uh, all people it makes we're doing the same thing in all of it and absolutely so all the all the isms <laughs> yeah, we do it with animals it's just another way except that the animals and i would go further because i'm also um in love with the earth and the plants and the trees all of it um they're all essential so absolutely yeah yeah and they're all integrated my own feeling is if if you go into a forest um in a, in a respectful way i think the forest is actually glad to see us mm -hmm. i think it welcomes us mm -hmm. what and so my own work is always on the win-win because i think it works better than oh this is awful and that is awful which is all true but then everyone gets depressed but what a miracle if you walk into a forest and you start to feel its life and all the life around you and you feel it welcoming you and you welcoming it and you both if you get into the right place you both start to glow what kind of nourishment is that for us yeah. and that we're missing that that's the tragedy we're missing it us as humans we're, we're deprived yeah i mean i've been really interested there's a book called something like your brain on nature and I've been, you know, writing about how being out in nature has positive effects on people. Not everyone. You know, I wrote an article and somebody wrote back and said, well, not everyone loves being out in nature. No, they don't. But that's not the, the important point is that it's not that everyone loves it. It's that a lot of people do. And once again, when you get down to the individual level, it helps a lot of people to say hello to a tree or to a dog or to a cat or to watch birds or wild animals, I mean, whoever you're watching, you know, and I, I just find myself constantly, not a vitalist in that sense, but maybe I am, but, you know, wondering what's going on in the tree. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what trees think about, and I don't know if they do think, but it doesn't matter. It matters that they're alive. Well, there's so much evidence now about how much more sentient they are. Yes. But Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the whole, you know, the whole, um, the whole field that's growing about, you know, tree sentience, or not only tree, but Flat. Yeah. the sentience of flora. Yeah. Fascinating. Yes. Wonderful. And we'll, you know, will we be wrong about something? Sure, but who cares? <laughs> Just open the door. Yeah. So you, you talked about anthropogenic conservation? Hmm. Anthropogenic. Well, I mean, I mean, what that really means is that so much conservation is motivated from the human's point of view. I mean, I've gone to meetings not too long ago, and I've read papers very recently where people talk about the environment and never talk about the animals who live there. 
It just, I mean, and, and, and they're not necessarily, I mean, some of the people I know who do this, they're not necessarily being snitty or anti-animal, but like you said before, I mean, it's just one whole big package. You know, I'm looking out my window here at, you know, trees, beautiful mountains, and there's birds in the trees, there's squirrels running around. I mean, they're all part of the environment. So the couple of reactions I have to that, one is the whole way we talk about the environment. Wait a minute, there's us and the environment. So I haven't found how to, the right words yet, but it's not us and the environment. We're no. all one. Or nature, like nature's out there and we're here. Wait yeah. a minute. <laughs> we're breathing the air right now of nature. There's a tree mm -hmm. out there breathing its oxygen. I just ate a tomato. Its genes are in my, in my blood. Mm -hmm. so, so the whole idea of nature and the environment i think we need to find different ways of expressing it because it sets up a distinction the environment oh absolutely it's a whole it's a dualism that can be really yeah it can be awesome environment yeah um i actually just i try to get people not to take this dual you know it could be more than dualism but take this dualistic we them or us animals, including humans, and them, or quote the environment. We are the environment. So when something happens to the tree next door, it can affect me. It could affect the life of the squirrels who I enjoy watching. I don't get to watch them. It affects me. I don't have that joy. Um, I just, I just cannot make that separation. Maybe it's just how I was raised or born or whatever, but I can't make those separations in terms of the interconnectedness. We are interconnected. Intertwined as one person put it. Yeah, we're intertwined, yeah. Yeah, that's another great word, yeah. I, I sometimes think of it as all these beings have threads and these threads are out in the universe and they're just, you can't even begin to um, yes. disentangle them. So, you know, what, I always just tell people, whatever works, and if it works in a positive way, do it. <laughs> that can be the way you view the world. Right. I thought, I thought you meant, but maybe not, with anthropogenic conservation is the idea of not us humans above, but of us now that we're in the Anthropocene, um, how we can begin to live with and, and interweave human life with nature in an entirely different way. And then in order to do that, we have to have an entirely different fundamental approach. We need to start with something very deep, mm -hmm. fundamental change. And you know, you can save land here and you can save water here, but it's not gonna make any difference in the end if we don't have a fundamental shift of perception, fundamental shift of understanding how things work. Otherwise, right. little bits here and there. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I mean, I, I think what I would mean by anthropogenic conservation would mean that it's motivated by humans, and and that sort of conservation has tended historically to favor humans. Uh. That you know, it's motivated by and favors humans rather than looking at members of different individuals of different species as being key components of say, you know, um, an ecosystem, you know, say key components of 
milieu of animals and in an ecosystem, and then saying that their interests in living the life that they've evolved into would be the same as ours. So when we start, that's where, I mean, in a sense, that's where compassion or conservation enters again, looking at the cognitive and emotional lives of these animals um, and realizing that they're as much a part in some ways, you could argue they're more of a part of an ecosystem than we are. It's just we're very powerful and we can go in and decimate these beautiful habitats, these, you know, ecosystems, um, animals' homes. We could do a job on them really fast just because of who we are and this, and, you know, skills that we have. And the scary machines. And, well, that's what I meant, the skills, right? The machines we have, the, the poisons, the traps, the bulldozers. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just think if, as time goes on, you know, another thing I really feel is, you know, we're not going to return to what was. We can't. And I don't mean that in a negative way. So when people say they're restoring or recreating ecosystems when they introduce animals, such as wolves, um, they're not recreating or restoring the ecosystem that was because ecosystems are dynamic entities that evolve. They're returning to what was and what was and who were there, which I think is good, mm -hmm. but they're not restoring or re recreating. Um, and, you know, you would hope that people would learn from the mistakes of the past, but but we're not very good at doing that. <laughs> yeah. We, I'm happy to hear about all the different types of people in compassionate conservation. You took, you sent me another article about, um, I don't know where to put it now, um, but about humane societies playing hooky. Remember that one? Yeah. Like, yeah. So when I, since when I go to consciousness conferences it, it, and they're not, they're not connected, and you say you go to conferences in animal consciousness, but have we connected the two? So it's one larger consciousness. How do we connect them? How do we connect um, an organization that's talking about health, but, not, but all the humane society people aren't there? Mm -hmm. the, the interdisciplinary interconnections seem to be missing in terms of a whole, a whole movement. There's a movement here and a movement there. How do we make that happen? Well, yeah, I mean, Compassionate Conservation does that. And then these Minding Animals conferences, there's the group Minding Animals International. And um, I've been part of that group since day one. And those conferences also are strongly transdisciplinary and very valuable because you get biologists, not all of them, but you get biologists or hard scientists who are willing to talk to philosophers or geologists or um, yeah. psychologists or, you know, people practicing spiritual practices, indigenous people. I mean, that's something that's always interested me is, you know, listening to people, listening to indigenous people's stories there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot to them. 
Um, so, so, you know, that's just another group where I think progress is being made in terms of how we interact with not only other animals, but other humans trying to understand cultural differences. And I may disagree with the way in which peoples of some culture interact with other animals. And I can only put out there what I would like to see, but you know, I'm a white guy sitting in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> what right do I have to tell, to tell them what to do? I mean, so, so that gets back in, you know, that always gets back into some of the spiritual realm where there are practices that I don't really might not like, like killing other animals, but you know, it's, it's a far cry from factory farms and laboratories and zoos and circuses and rodeos. The impersonality. The, the yes. impersonality. Is right. The right. I mean, I had the opportunity years ago um, going to a meeting here in Boulder on the university of Colorado campus where I was teaching and it was Native Americans coming together to talk about, you know, basically Native Americans and non-human animals. And I was just told I can't ask questions, take notes or take pictures or anything. And in that eight hour day, I can't say my life was changed, but I certainly had a, a very different appreciation for these people. And when I think a couple of them asked me, you know, at the end, you know, okay, you know, okay, I was the only white guy in the room, really. And, you know, can you, you want to say something? And I said, yeah, I've really learned a lot. You know, for me, the killing of the animals is not just part of my kind of daily routine. But I sure see the respect. And they have a really different worldview. So I'm not just trying to justify it and rationalize it to be politically correct. They just have a different view. And, and they've been around for a lot longer than I have. It might seem like a silly distinction, but I really think it makes a difference if you kill with compassion or respect, or if you kill with disconnection or cruelty. I think it makes a difference. Oh, I think you could too. I could too. I mean, right now both are off the table for me, but, but, but yes, I, I, I agree. I'm not saying we should, but I'm saying- Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. <laughs> as a PTSD, like one is like when a, uh, there's a landslide and a lot of people die and you see your loved ones drowning, etc. That's different from when people are being deliberately tortured, for example. The impact is different. It's very different. And I think it's the same, not that I'm saying anything, I don't like killing anything. Yeah. But still, it's, we were just talking about the impersonality was so awful about the factory farming, etc. There's a disconnection, the mindless cruelty, those animals not even being seen. Oh, right. They don't exist. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, that's the extra insult on top of it all. Those yeah. things not even being acknowledged at yeah. any level. Even if you do kill them for me, not even acknowledged, just a thing. I mean, it's just, um, and what it does to the people. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I don't know that literature, but one of the Greek philosophers, it might have been Aristotle, actually wrote something about people eating other animals' pains and suffering and making them more aggressive. I was shocked. Somebody pointed that out to me years ago because people wonder whether, you know, when you're eating stressed animals who were stressed and abused and, you know, are you really taking in the, 
well, you are taking in their chemicals, but doesn't have an effect on us. And I don't know that people know that, but I was really surprised that way back when <laughs> one of the, you know, three major, or not, maybe not major, but the ones that people know, you know, Greek philosophers um, were writing about that. I was thinking what it does to a human soul to yeah. connected and kill another. Yeah. Well, I can't, I don't see how it could have any positive effect at all. <laughs> no. Well, no, I mean, I've worked with murderers in my jail class. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm seeing them, you know, in, in very compromised situations, but I've really learned a lot from them. And yes, for a lot of them, it's really, it's just wrecked their soul and spirit and they have souls and spirits mm -hmm. as well. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it's just something I can't understand, um, but, but I think it's important to put it, put out all that information, you know, in terms of what we're doing and how it affects them and how it affects us. That might be, and that might be an avenue into the future when people come to realize that as you treat other beings, you are maybe having an Either, a po either no or a positive influence on yourself, but when you're mistreating them and you're abusing them, you're having a very powerful, powerful negative right. reaction on yourself. Yeah, all the good news stuff that's happening in energy work might help that because that's getting increasingly accepted to the negative energy, the impact of it on a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like we said, I said before, things are changing. They're going slowly, but, but yeah. things are changing. Um, I'm not going to, you know, people say, you know, what do you think that in 50 years the world will be as good as it is now or as it is now? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But for the things or the topics in which I'm really interested, I'm seeing slow and incremental changes, and that's good. And there's Paul, Paul Hawkins' wonderful book from years ago about the blessed unrest. Yeah. And... Um... It feels to me like things are changing all over the world, that there's an increasing recognition of all of these things, whether it'll happen fast enough or that we don't know. The only thing you can do is contribute as much as you can to it. But I, I definitely feel things moving and shifting in a positive direction. People are just so hungry also to help and to do what they can, even if they don't know what it is. And people are just so alienated. And that's once again, getting to their psyches. You know, Richard Love's work, you know, um, in nature deficit syndrome. And I know he's, he's just finished a book and, you know, just this disconnection, how it really destroys people's psyches and it destroys their being, you know, the alienation. We're built to connect. We are built to connect in different ways. Not what works for you may not work for me and vice versa, but, but right. Um, but I think part of what's going to drive the change will be these feelings of discontent where people want to live, if you will, happier and healthier and more altruistic lives. Mm -hmm. And then they'll realize they're all related. You know, that, you know, it, there's been studies shown that for people who are lonely or people who don't have good lives, volunteering is one of the major things they can do to yeah. feel better. And what's great about it is, I don't care, go volunteer because it makes you feel better, but you're also helping someone else. 
I know people, you know, who said, well, wouldn't it be nice if they were volunteering because they really wanted to do it? And I'm going, yeah, maybe it would be, but they're helping themselves. And by helping themselves, they're helping others. And then you've got that intertwining where you are feeling better, they're feeling better. And then you need to harness that positive energy into a future better world. I tend to be somewhat optimistic also, partly because it's the only practical thing to be. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, work, you can't work with kids and be pessimistic. I've had young kids say to me, you know, that everybody tells us it's impossible. So why should we do anything? I mean, I really... Because we don't know that it's impossible. Well, I always say, of course, if, you can, if you're convinced something's impossible, then it will be impossible. But we don't know. But we don't know. The thing I was going to say was... Um, your, your comment, there's some hope in the deep discontent that people feel. I agree with that. I think they're really hungry. They're really deeply discontented. They sense something's wrong. I do think um, that we are by nature all deeply connected to the earth. Even if we're in the city we don't even, and don't even know it, we do like to go to the park or we like dogs or whatever. We're connected. Mm-hmm. We sense instinctively that something's missing. We don't know what it is. We don't know where to look, but we sense it. And I think that level of discontent, if we can somehow tap into that more to show people where we might be able to have richer lives, as in connecting with other life, I think that is a very important insight on your part. I think it's, I, I really see it in a lot of my friends, you know, for example. So I, th- I think it's real. You know, the other aspect in Rewilding Our Hearts, I, I wrote about different, vari- you know, different reasons people are disconnected is you know, just over busy. They're just there's too much to do. And well, there is a lot to do. So people have to uh, spend more time making lists of priorities, for example. But I always think if you make a list of priorities, doing something for someone else, then you will in turn benefit. We don't question what we want versus what we need or what we're told we want. Yeah, right. Exactly. We don't question it. It's another major what do we give weight to? Do we question what we want versus what we need? We do have a richer life if we really qualify, uh, explore it that more. Yeah. No, that's absolutely, yeah, that's absolutely true. And that, of course, gets back to the interconnectedness and the spiritual component. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty amazed sometimes. I was just thinking of some people I know who, who, when they used to hear those sorts of words, would really either laugh or, you know, go, oh, it's a bunch of bull. But no, now they're realizing that to talk about spiritual, intangible interconnections, intertwinedness, if that's a word, um, intertwining, um, really works. They feel better. I've actually had people tell me this, and I've had inmates at, my, at the class in the jail I teach tell me that that feeling of being intertwined and that feeling of oneness has really given them hope and made them more optimistic and made them realize that, you know, despite the very bad things some of these guys have done, they're not useless human beings. They're not, you know, they, they're not necessarily, they shouldn't necessarily be marginalized as being useless. I ran into a a guy just on um, Saturday um, in Boulder who was in my class and he's up and about now. And he doesn't ever want to go back. And he told me that learning about other animals and learning about um, the interconnectedness of 
humans and non-humans and humans and nature and non-humans and nature, blah, blah, blah. All those interconnections helped him along. Okay. He, yeah, he really realized that if he wanted to be free, he was going to have to change not only his worldview, but how he behaved in the world. This also stops the sense of isolation, which is such a big part of it, a lot of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's why Facebook and those things are so popular. Because <laughs> people are... They, they feel isolated. The prisoners feel isolated. Yeah. Before they even go to prison. That's one of the reasons they do the things they do, because they don't feel they can be part of. That's exactly right. And part of the program I'm in is to transition them out so that they don't feel isolated or marginalized or shamed or blamed or however you want to cast it. But for a lot of them, the connections to other nature, um, just being outside with trees, being outside with other animals is really healing yeah. and, motiv and um, motivating and energizing and makes them feel better. I've, I've just had so many of them tell me that. It's amazing. And the profound love they have for the animals they care for, if there's a program like that in a prison. We don't have one here, but yes. It's just beautiful to see the profound love they have, caring for a damn parakeet, you know? Not, yeah. not to denigrate parakeets. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, yeah. But also, since we don't have that, you know, a hands-on animal program here, just talking about them and, you know, asking them to talk, to relate the stories of the animals with whom they grew up. And, uh, um, and if they were out in nature, you could just see their eyes light up. Because a whole lot of them, the first thing they want to do when they get out is get away from humans and go into nature. I mean, I hear that phrase, get into nature. I want to work with dogs. One guy wants to work, become a dog trainer. Um, another guy, you know, has been working as training guard dogs. I mean, you know, I mean, these are people who, these are people who could just on the, you know, with just a blink could be spending the rest of their lives behind bars. Yeah. It's a very beautiful thing to see. Yeah. And there's a spiritual component and they talk about it freely. They really do. Mm -hmm. They feel it more. In some ways they may feel it more than you or I because of the situation in which they live. Wow. <laughs> Wide ranging. <laughs> I had, I, I used to teach in a supermax. And oh, okay. One, one inmate, um, well, I'll never forget. He was a serial rapist. Um, and he was in prison for I don't know how long. And after we started talking a while, he said, you know what? I set it up so I was caught because I got more and more into the serial rape and I knew that the next thing I was going to do would be to kill. And I didn't want to. Yeah. So there's that a profound decency in someone who you would say is a, as a total, but you know, who's compelled on some level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of them just wind up there because it's the only way that they can, it's, it's the only possibility that they'll get help, the help they need. They won't get it at home or on the streets. Yeah. But it is the isolation and any sense of connection. Like, I bet there are a whole bunch of people who don't ever go to prison because they have a dog or a cat. Oh, I bet. Yeah, we don't know that. And, and I... And once I, I mentioned something along those lines to the guys, but we, you, it's, you don't know how to study it, but it would, it would be a fascinating conversation. 
Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I'll think about it. <laughs> it's the connection. It's the connection we need to stay alive and healthy and sane. We just need it. And yeah. It doesn't really matter what it's with, whether it be a, a plant or a dog or a human or, or a tree, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I, it, yeah. It, it, it doesn't matter at all. We disintegrate without a connection. Yeah. And an energetic exchange. Yes. Yeah. Some other living being. Yeah. Well, this has been lovely, Mark. Well, thank you. This has been great. I've, I wasn't taking notes, but I've got notes in my head that I'm going to be writing down. Well, the good news is it's recorded. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get it all. Thank you for joining us today, Mark. Mark's website is markbekoff.com. M-A-R-C-B-E-K-O-F-F. -F.